0: I was, like, not in the country when this first happened and sort of missed it. And then, like, I came back and there was, like, total devastation. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today by two... Uh, first time first time weeds guests i think uh Eliza Barclay, our uh, science editor and alexia fernandez campbell who uh covers economic policy and who who both of them have been doing uh, great stories about puerto rico the, the hurricane there the the disaster response and the sort of the the larger economic situation wanted to to bring them in and and talk about this um so i uh you know i have a good good hosting perspective i was Literally uh, in Germany when this was going on, uh, trying to cover their election in a different time zone, uh, their cable news was all in a foreign language and mostly talking about weird German stuff. So i i kind of i kind of like missed it initially. And like Eliza, like what what happened here? Like how did the island get so flattened?
1: Well, first, it is an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting us. So. <laughs> I think a lot of people were probably not—were caught off guard by Hurricane Maria in part because we were still following the story of Hurricane Harvey and Irma. But then Hurricane Maria popped up and um, started hurtling through the Atlantic into the Caribbean um, really quickly. This was a hurricane that intensified really quickly, but— Basically, it became clear, and, you know, we have the National Weather Service, which does excellent weather forecasting, and they uh, gave everyone a heads up that this huge hurricane was heading directly towards Puerto Rico. Um, So when we think about, you know, the disaster, we're going to be talking a lot about what happened next, it is important to note that— just like all the other storms, there was a lot of forecasting ahead of time. It was clear that Puerto Rico was going to be hit really hard. And so when it did make landfall as a Category 4 hurricane, it it's, uh, had winds of 150 miles per hour. And that is just one mile per hour off of being a Category 5. So it was practically a Category 5. Super, super strong hurricane made landfall directly on the uh, east side of the island, and then it bisected the island. It cut all the way across. And it actually, the size of the hurricane was huge. You know, one atmospheric scientist told us it was like a 50-mile-wide tornado. So it completely engulfed the whole island. You know, the satellite images that we have show it just like you can't see the island. Like, it's just hurricane completely covering it. So when we think about what happened there, you know, keep in mind huge 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 storm and then of course it, it passed through and kept going but it made a huge direct hit in Puerto Rico also the US Virgin Islands let's and British Virgin Islands uh, and Dominica big impact those places too but of course Puerto Rico island of 3.4 million people lots of people
0: and I I mean am, am I right to think that the the press in the United States did not sort of treat this? the same as hurricanes that were coming to to Texas and and Florida in terms of the, like, you know, there were, I mean, I remember when when Irma came, there was this, like, enormous scrambling of, like, every correspondent they could dredge up to, like, stand on a beach somewhere on the Florida Gulf Coast and be like, it's really windy in a hurricane. You know, it was the kind of thing where, on one level, I could sort of look at that and be like, well, this is kind of like a dumb stunt. But on the other hand, it it conveyed a level of, urgency, urgency yeah. to, to the public. And obviously, Puerto Rico is part of the United States of America, but it's not perceived that way by by everybody.
2: Well, I think that had a lot to do with the, the press coverage. You know, the government's response was just this idea that, you know, what was it, a poll that said half of Americans or uh, or more didn't even realize that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Uh, so I definitely think that this view that Puerto Rico is just a Latin American island um, that's not part of the United States had a lot to do with that kind of like the coverage. You know, you saw Irma and Harvey, you know, barreling towards, you know, the U.S. mainland and that had the press freaking out like these, you know, this is our country. But people weren't really freaking out the same way about Puerto Rico because of that sense that most Americans maybe don't even realize that it's it's part of the United States.
0: Right. I mean, what well, we did uh, say, Paul, it was what 50 54% said that they weren't aware Puerto Ricans were Americans. And of course it's a it's a cliche, right? I mean this is a West Side story when I was a kid and that's like the whole song there about this and people don't don't conceptualize Puerto Rico as as part of the United States. It wasn't it wasn't in the media glare in the same way and and I mean we know President Trump gets a lot of information from watching television, right? I mean, uh, obviously American government officials who are stationed in Puerto Rico are aware that they're part of the United States, uh, but if you get your information about the world primarily by watching Fox and Friends, right if the programming decision is that well, we're treating this like a foreign news story rather than like a domestic news story, that probably shapes shapes the response.
1: And I will just note that the website 538 actually did an analysis yesterday looking at the comparative coverage of the three storms, both in online media and broadcast. And they they noted that there was considerably less coverage of Hurricane Maria compared to Irma and Harvey.
0: And, and would you say, I mean, just, I, I mean, I'm sure you you look at at the stats of this stuff. I mean, was there less reader interest in in these kind of things? Did, did you see that?
1: No. I mean, interestingly, when we started publishing... Uh, Maria's stories, there was a lot of interest. And I think that might be reflective of the people who were who are actually engaged, perhaps because they have family in Puerto Rico, perhaps because they are Puerto Ricans on the island seeking information. We're really hungry for information. And after we published our big explainer earlier this week, uh, I received a couple emails from people saying, thank you so much for covering this. Uh, We are desperate uh, for—we're really upset with the government response, and we're upset with the media coverage to date.
2: You know, I guess in one way, in defense of the media, there was so little information coming out. I don't think there was the the angle of this is not really the United States, but it was also like there was just no cell phone communications. I don't think anyone really realized what was happening there and took days for information to start to trickle out. And I do think that after that, the press really did start to see, oh, we really should pay attention to this. These are Americans. but. But yeah, I think it is a combination of both both of those things.
0: Right, because the, the sort of initial most obvious impact really was that the cell phone service went totally blank, right? So we stopped hearing
1: anything. 85% of cell phone towers are down, and I think they remain. Almost that many probably are still down.
0: And, and the power was completely knocked out, which I think— Irma had hit was Irma where it Irma, right? Hit a, a limited portion of the island, but knocked out power there. And in what I guess we should have seen as a warning sign, right, the immediate word was like, it wasn't like, well, we lost power in this part of the island and it'll be back at the end of the weekend. It was this is like gonna be gone for months. And so we got that, but everywhere and also all the cell phones. So things, things went dark essentially for several days until American, the FEMA director and, and Senator Marco Rubio took one an earlier trip, and and people started sort of reporting reporting back early this week.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing that's hit me in the last couple of days, and <clears throat> reflecting now that we are fully in the state of realizing that the response has been very inadequate, uh, you know, we can think back to. Went last Wednesday, and even the day before, when people were predicting if Puerto Rico gets directly hit by Maria, this is going to knock out power on on the island and four months. (laughs) And you know, now it seems like if anyone had taken, I mean, I know people in the government took that seriously, but it seems to me now that they did not take it nearly seriously enough. What does it mean to, to knock out power on an entire island? I mean, I think we take electricity for granted in this country. Our grid is pretty reliable. Um, Puerto Ricans actually don't. They A lot of them have backup generators. They know what regular outages are like, but it is just a huge thing to lose power on an entire island for, for health um, or just people's ability to operate, to function, and to just... And so anyway, my point is, it, it seems like there's been this lagging response, but had someone recognized... I feel, I feel like perhaps perhaps the leadership should have taken seriously the power outage issue uh, right at the outset. Well and I think they didn't. that
2: yeah no and I agree that and that's one of the reasons why I think the FEMA's basic response was not adequate It was not taking into the account that if something of Harvey or Irma's uh you know strength or or, or stronger hit Puerto Rico it was not going to be as easy. And it was never going to be the same to be able to to restore power to Puerto Rico. And everyone knew that. I mean, it was very clear that Puerto Rico's infrastructure was wrecked, that a hurricane, and they had been warning that if a hurricane comes, this the power is going to be out for months. So the government knew it was just FEMA is not designed to respond to that level of devastation because in the U.S. mainland, like the electric, like you said, the power grids are just not that fragile. I mean, the, the
0: you know, the, the electrical element of this is you know, is is hard, and and I I want to talk about that later when we talk about the sort of long term structural issues there. But the the communication issue here seems telling to me because I've gotten emails and seen Instagram posts from friends who are stationed on small forward operating bases in Afghanistan with with the American military, and you know, obviously they don't have cell phone towers in in you know remote war zone areas, uh, but we do have communications because satellite communication. You know, the, the government has ways to establish very robust communications networks in in remote kinds of areas. And they clearly just did not station that kind of equipment there, right? I mean, things that it would cost some money, it would take some time to say, okay, in the major population centers, we need to have like a guy with a satellite pack and enough people to cruise around for 10 miles and tell us what's happening at, so we can get a disaster report within hours rather than days but it's that's not the same as like the kind of major undertaking of rebuilding a whole power grid they just didn't they just didn't do it right i mean it, there was not a priority made that we're going to want to get really fast information from Puerto Rico so for days we didn't get information a- and i feel like that's sort of the the story of this this disaster response on, on on a few different levels uh, but 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 like I, say, I mean you've you've been talking to sort of experts about this o- over the past couple of days and I mean what what are they telling you about this I mean obviously it's a bad storm but is it a good re- response to the storm
1: uh so a couple of things one uh, a couple of disaster experts have emphasized you know this is a true catastrophe um, it is and it is a part of the reason for that is that it is such so logistically ch- challenging to to respond to now you know we can compare it to katrina and say well katrina we had storm surge right which brought in so much water uh, and and killed and a lot of people drowned this is not a disaster about people drowning um, or people getting caught in you know an earthquake and collapsing buildings this is a this is a disaster of people stuck in small towns, cut off from uh, supplies and fuel and food and water. And it is reaching those people that is clearly now proving to be extremely challenging for everyone, Um, FEMA, military, local officials. We keep hearing all these reports from the ground uh, from journalists who are there about, you know, they keep going into small towns. Everyone there says, we haven't seen anyone. No one has come to us. You know, the journalists are the first one there. There's no FEMA. There's no local officials. So in terms of the response, people are pretty critical. You know, the, the disasterologists, so to speak, um, they are not very impressed overall. They, a lot of them are saying, hey, it's a bit early to evaluate. We don't know. It's not entirely clear, like, what decisions have been made. FEMA is not necessarily being transparent, but generally people think that it it could have been faster. Um, it's been too slow and it hasn't been enough, and clearly the disaster is way exceeding the response so far. Like, they're not matched.
2: No, right. it's like it's like the basic FEMA response to something that would happen on the U.S. mainland, which is counting on the power coming back, being fixed within three days, and people getting potable water within, like, a few days— Um, it's not, it wasn't designed, like you mentioned the satellite phones, the fact that the big problem was, oh, we can't get satellite phones to the mayors in all these towns after the storm was like, well, why was that not part of the, the pre-planning? Why did they not have those satellite phones ahead of time? So like you said, that would have been like a major, that would have solved so many issues. Like that could have gotten a lot of things going faster.
0: And something that's striking to me about this is, you know, I mean, hurricanes are not predictable exactly, but they're also, I mean, we know that hurricanes hit Caribbean islands, right, in general. This is like a fact that we know. It's not new to have a hurricane hit Puerto Rico. And hurricanes aren't like earthquakes that arise with no warning at all. You know for at least a couple of days that a hurricane is coming in in this kind of direction. So you should have time to do... uh, You can't go back in time and fix the electrical grid in Puerto Rico or, or like resolve the government's debt situation. But you really can scramble before a hurricane comes and like get some get some phones get some i don't know 10 supplies i mean you i mean i've we've all like watched these maps right like you know a hurricane is coming and are presumably supposed to start responding like then when when you see it there, but particularly because, I mean, it's so it's just it's so foreseeable, like hurricane strikes on Caribbean islands. Right. I mean, it's it's like a this is like the only thing we even know about like <laughs> public policy in the in the Caribbean. It, it, it seems a, a little bizarre to me. You know, when you, you have the president, I mean, he spent all weekend launching this feud about the NFL. Right. Which you know, I mean, I heard some people say, well, it's it's not like, you know, those tweets like stopped him from from responding, but it shows that there was not a focus, right? I mean, nobody said to him like Mr. President, we got to like block out some time and think about this. That that there was no like mental energy on this subject.
1: Yeah, to to one of your earlier questions or points, um Lieutenant General Russell Honore who was the uh, General credited with turning around the Katrina response um, after the Bush administration was floundering, um, he's been speaking up the last couple of days and been pretty critical. And one thing he told Bloomberg yesterday that, was, that I thought was quite interesting was he said, the government has to be prepared now to handle three category four storms a year. The government cannot depend that next year will be a slow year. Also, uh, Craig Fugate, who ran FEMA under Obama, he agreed with Honore, and he says that it's clear that the U.S. has not really learned lessons from the past storm. So, yeah, I think absolutely uh, there's we know how to assemble supplies um, in advance of a hurricane. We know that, for instance, right before Irma, there were 17,000 National Guard troops ready to go um, to help and you know, the the situation in Puerto Rico in terms of who was around to help National Guardsmen and others seems like definitely an insufficient people around to help in the case of a major disaster, which is what happened, which was, yes, indeed, somewhat predictable given what we knew about the storm even days in advance.
2: And it's really interesting because I spoke to um, Army Corps responders in Puerto Rico and Department of Energy uh, electrical workers who are there. And they said that they were only there because they had been responding to the damage from Hurricane Irma from a few weeks earlier. So they just happened to be on the island. And it wasn't like some coordinated response to get people there ahead of time. And then the Department of Energy was telling me how they were just struggling to get people on a flight days later to into Puerto Rico. And the fact that they didn't have enough people already on the ground was just like pretty astonishing.
0: And and I I mean, I, I read in a Washington Post account today that there were actually people who had been there from Irma, from the National Guard who were sent home right before the storm, rather than additional people being being sent in, and they drew the the contrast to the very very rapid response to a, a earthquake in in Haiti that came in in twenty ten. I mean, a difference being, I guess, that was a designated as a military led effort, but I, I, I guess you know the the Obama administration made the call that given the logistical challenges of Reaching an island whose basic physical infrastructure has been devastated, that the military rather than FEMA had the logistical capability to reach towns in interior Haiti and to deploy huge quantities of helicopters and, and things like that. So that's how they handled it. You know, Puerto Rico—it's I, I, part of the United States, so it's in a different—it's in a different legal status. Uh, but also, this is—I mean, I, I, I hate to say—but it's like this is why you have a president right because like the government doesn't just run on autopilot all the time and fema is not necessarily equipped to handle a, an emergency in this kind of unusual geography and you need to say like well you know if fema is saying we can't get to these towns like who who can get to them right i mean we have like boats full of helicopters in in the navy um and it, it's just it's like shocking to me the extent to which it seems like things are getting done because criticism comes in. And then in response to the criticism, the Trump administration has started, has started to move.
2: Yeah, it seems like almost like there are many things the administration either didn't care to think about or just was not even like aware of. The fact of this naval ship, the USNS Comfort, that re- immediately responded uh, to the her- earthquake in Haiti with a naval ship with hospital beds and x-ray machines and things that like, Puerto Rico would really need because the hospitals do not have power most of them are operating on like very limited power it would be like an obvious response that was sent happened in in Haiti and Katrina after Katrina so there was this confusion about why is is the ship not being sent there it's sitting in Norfolk Virginia it's not deployed on another humanitarian mission. And so it wasn't until like social media campaigns, you know, uh, tweets. Hillary Clinton Hillary, tweeted about it, She right? did too. And then members of Congress and, you know, lo and behold, eventually the the Department of Defense said there, it's being deployed. Oh, but it's going to take four days to get there. So it could have already been there. And now it's not it's not even there yet. Um, so that, that kind of thing. And then the about the Jones Act, which you you wrote about a lot. It wasn't until public pressure, you know, the Wall Street Journal, which we know the president really respects, their editorial board was saying you need to waive the Jones Act so shipping supplies can get in there, um, you know, more affordably.
0: And what was shocking about the, the Jones Act thing to me was that uh, this is like a complicated regulation, but let's just say it makes it expensive oftentimes to send things to U.S. ports by water. It is just routinely waived in hurricane-type situations. Uh, the Bush administration waived it for Katrina, Obama, for for Sandy. And the Trump administration waived it for Hurricane Irma three weeks ago. I know, it's amazing. So they knew how to do this. Um, Elizabeth Duke is, like, aware of which folder has the right form in it. And they didn't do it. And then people started criticizing them. I mean, it took a little while to even get criticized because it's so routine at this point.
1: And then didn't Trump actually say, here's why I'm not doing it because the, the, shipping. Tr- the shipping industry doesn't want us to.
0: Right. So Trump said that. And then, you know, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who is one of the few cabinet members who actually has a personal relationship with Trump, is a person who is in the shipping industry. So, you know, it raised some eyebrows. And then you got increasingly furious sort of Response from from Senator McCain, Senator Mike Lee, who are longtime Jones Act critics. And eventually they issue the waiver. Um, as I understand it, actually like getting waterborne supplies into Puerto Rican ports is not even that critical of an issue right now. But it's it's like shows the whole machinery of the government was just not like running at a rapid pace. There was no There was no massive public campaign to get them to do the Irma Jones Act waiver. They just did it because it's part of – it's like part of the playbook.
2: Well, I think – and the fact that the president hasn't even visited and doesn't plan to visit – Puerto Rico until next week, which would make it about two weeks since the storm hit. I mean, that just says so much. He was in Texas four days after Harvey. Then he came back again. He went to Tampa. But he's in no rush. I mean, members of Congress are going to Puerto Rico, and he's in no rush to go over there. So, I mean, it just shows it really is not a priority for the administration to to go help Puerto Rico.
1: And I think if you look at the tone of some of the tweets, too, there is a little bit of, you know, messaging there that, Puerto Rico's maybe kind of a basket case uh, anyway. Like, maybe it's their fault. Maybe it's not really worth our time. You know, I, I, I'm sort of sensing this, like, tone of, like, Trump, you know, Puerto Rico's a little bit of a loser, you know. Like, why why should we help them? Today, even this morning, there was, you know, like, questions about— whether, or how much to rebuild, I mean, is which is quite different from the what we heard post Harvey and Irma like we w- we shall rebuild. I mean, I'm not these are not direct quotes, of course, but substantially different tone,
0: yeah. I mean, he seemed to be almost trying to reassure people that there wouldn't be too much work done rather than trying to reassure people that
2: that help exactly us on the way. because the next point in the FEMA response would be that FEMA would have to authorize a more more. Robust response, like uh, rebuilding infrastructure, roads, and that gets really expensive. The FEMA relief fund does not have em- enough money to rebuild Puerto Rico right now, so it's going to take Congress to authorize billions of more dollars to help Puerto Rico rebuild. And that's what Trump is saying, kind of warning people. It seems like you're not going to get that money. But here's the thing: Puerto Ricans pay federal taxes. They fund FEMA. They fund the government. The only federal inc- uh, tax they don't pay is a personal income tax on the on the island. Um, but you know, there I don't. There's this idea that they're somehow might not be entitled to the same kind of response because they're not, you know, technically a state, but they are paying taxes. So I I feel like that's something that gets missed in this conversation.
0: Okay, so again, do do a break now and then let's talk about the sort of bigger picture, longer term economic background on on Puerto Rico, because I think that's why this becomes such an issue. Okay, uh, you guys know Lyft, uh, the, the ride-sharing company. You get your smartphone app, uh, you press a button, get a ride, it takes you where you need to go. One of the things that Lyft knows is that their drivers are what keeps the whole company moving, right? I mean, the, the drivers are the the engine of the company. They make everything happen. So Lyft does everything they can do to make sure that their drivers are happy on every trip. So that's a, it's a pretty simple formula as far as they're concerned. Happy drivers mean happy passengers. That's why nine out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect five-star rating. And what they want is more drivers. You can earn hundreds of dollars week, plus tips. Uh, And if you want to earn more money, you drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. Uh, They were the first rideshare platform with tipping built right into the app uh, because they know that getting tips shouldn't depend on, you know, whether you got some crumpled bills in your pocket. You keep 100% of the tips and they add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the feature was first introduced. Express Pay lets you get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. And they've taken the guesswork out of pickups. Uh, Their new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. Uh, So join the ridesharing company that believes in treating its people better. You go to lyft.com slash weeds today and you get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lift.com slash weeds, lift.com slash weeds. Limited time only, terms apply.
2: Hi, listeners of The Weeds, it's Liz Plank, and I have a podcast recommendation for you. It's my podcast, Divided States of Women, where Hetha Herzog and I explode the myth of a monolithic women's block by hearing from thoughtful, passionate women around the country. That includes sharp and insightful writers and policy experts, people like Samita Mukhopaidai, who's the editor of Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America, and people like Angela Stroud, who's a researcher on the links between gun ownership and gender. Divided States of Women drops on Thursday, so it's the perfect palate cleanser. While you're waiting for your second weekly episode of The Weeds, just look for Divided States of Women wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The devastation of the electrical infrastructure is obviously such a key sort of part of of this disaster. And normally in any kind of situation, I mean, it's common for a storm to knock out electricity someplace or other. And typically you hear, you know, we got crews working overtime and it'll be, I mean, it it can take a week. Uh, it could take a few days, but usually people are steadily getting their electricity back in a in a relatively short time frame. And because of that, you know, hospitals can operate, but also like people can just like go back to their office and do their jobs and and live their lives. So uh, Alexei, I mean, why is it that we're talking about this hazy months long time frame? like like what's what's up?
2: Yeah. So the, the Puerto Rican electrical system has been a mess for years. Um, there has been no investment in it. I mean, it's, and it's partially Puerto Rico's fault. And it's partially the U.S. government fault, uh, government's fault. Puerto Rico has been in, you know, a debt crisis, uh, a really severe recession since 2006. And it's because, they, they you know, they just don't have any money. A lot of it has to do, like, I would say the starting point for the economic crisis in Puerto Rico, which has, you know, led to what's happening with their power system, is that um, you know, Congress used to uh, had authorized these really insane tax breaks for U.S. companies to operate in Puerto Rico, and, like, the pharmaceutical industry has been making so many drugs there in Puerto Rico. I think about a quarter of their economy relied on on uh, drug makers being there, and the Clinton administration decided that these tax breaks were costing too much money for the government and started phasing them out in 96, and they were completely gone by 2006, and that had a devastating effect on the—because Puerto Rico had relied so much— on these multinational corporations being there uh, that when the jobs started to disappear, a lot of companies realized that it wasn't worth it to stay there. And it just really has devastated the Puerto Rican economy. And in turn, like the Puerto Rico hasn't, didn't really handle that very well. They just kept borrowing money, selling their bonds to, to Wall Street, um, municipal bonds, every time just to pay their bills, not even to—they weren't investing it in their infrastructure. Um, they were just were using it to literally pay their workers and pay the bills.
0: Right. So, so, I mean, about 10 years ago, right, there's this double blow to the Puerto Rican economy where first the, the tax credit— dries up, so the pharmaceutical manufacturing starts to go away. And that's in 2006. Then you have 2007, 2008, there's a nationwide recession. recession. And so one of the things people, you know, really cut back on in in hard times is, like, going on vacation, right? So that's, like, another big blow to Puerto Rico's other industry. And they've been in a trap ever since then, essentially, because people, people leave. Right, I mean, P- Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, so if you're struggling and you can't get work in Puerto Rico, it's relatively easy to to go to Florida or go to New York and seek sort of better opportunities there. But that makes the debt burden so much higher, right? Because the the island is in debt. The you you owe the money, in effect, if you continue to reside in Puerto Rico. But if you go, you can sort of get ahead. And then you you leave it behind on a, a smaller number of people who are who are left there. And so they've been in this kind of downward, downward spiral that reached a reached ahead. I mean, they were on the verge of a sort of a default on their debt. Was that was that one two years ago?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the the electric company defaulted in July. So just on their interest payment, they had reached uh, a deal with creditors because the the electric company the, the the system is so ancient that they actually have to import oil to burn to make electricity in Puerto Rico. And they were just selling bonds, uh, borrowing money to do that. And they they suddenly like couldn't they couldn't pay back their creditors in 2014. And so in, in they they restructured part of the debt. And part of the deal was that they needed to modernize their electric grid, and and they didn't. They just, they could barely pay their bills, and in July, they defaulted. So it was, the the electric system was in such a mess. And then 10% of their workforce Left because they saw that the, the electric company was going to go bankrupt and they were worried about their pensions. So 10% of the, their highly skilled workforce retired early. They don't have enough workers in Puerto Rico because they're all leaving to the U.S. Like People graduate. Electrical engineers graduate in Puerto Rico. They're not going to stay around. There are no jobs. And they pay more in the United States anyway. So why would they stay in Puerto Rico? So they have this shortage of highly skilled workers. Their workforce is... Re- retiring they don't want to stick around for the bankruptcy and let you know not get their pensions so they just don't have enough people to respond to fix even on like before the hurricane power outages were so common because they just did not have enough workers to go fix them right fix the problems right away
0: right so I mean the the thinking when you have a bankruptcy so so first the electrical company can't invest because so much of the revenue that's coming in is going to pay off old debts, right? So that's that's one problem. You have this, this maintenance backlog where the creditors get sort of the first claim on the money. You have the secondary thing, which is that when a company goes bankrupt, one thing that's typical is that the creditors force cuts in, in pay and cuts in pensions. But so the uh, Employees have the view that if they sort of retire now, they can lock in their pensions before there's a reform. Yeah. So they're tending to run out of people. But then the third thing is that skilled electrical utility workers, that's actually an in-demand professional skill. Mm -hmm. And so people who are not on the verge of retirement but who can see that there's like a bad situation facing their employer— can go do this and go work for other electrical utilities elsewhere, right? So this is why, essentially, in a normal situation, you would expect the utility to just like, I don't know, you you have people work extra shifts and you get the power lines back up, but they're out of people.
2: Yeah, and they're right before this. I think think Irma, they were begging their retirees to please just come and work, like the, all the like. I don't know how many hundreds retired like right after the news of the potential bankruptcy um, and they were begging them to please just come back on a part-time basis. We really can't, we don't have enough staff to fix because it's just such an old system that it requires so much rigging and so much fixing that really only these these workers really know how to do. I, I, I don't even know that American utility companies would even know how to fix the, the Puerto Rican electrical system. It's so different and so old compared to the American ones. So these workers are the only ones who know how to fix it and they're retiring and they're like, We don't have anyone else to do this job.
1: One thing I would just add is that, indeed, there are deep, deep structural problems with the utility, but the storm, of course, was super strong, and it did knock down 90% 90 of the transmission line. So Mm -hmm. this would be a big task to restore them no matter what, right? Probably anywhere. Uh, But certainly especially hard and there's I'm sure there's a lot of other issues with the other, you know, the the power stations, et cetera, due to this decayed, you know, infrastructure um, that will make the restoration really hard. But you've been in touch with the American Public Power Association and and they've been saying that, you know, they don't even have uh power lines or poles like en route yet. Like they have not even begun the process of picking up and fixing all these transmission lines which just gives you a sense of like what a massive task this is going to be to restore power on the island fully. Yeah,
2: there's this idea that people are working to restore power but they actually are not because they don't ha- they have to ship in all the down power lines, all the wires. Utility crews, I spoke with the head of the Department of Energy who's responding and he said we don't have enough people. Puerto Rico doesn't have enough people to fix this problem. He said it's billions of dollars in damage. 80% of the transmission lines from the power centers to the rest of the island are down. All the 100% of the wires that um, take electricity into people's homes and businesses are down. And he's, there's just no one—there's there, just no capacity on the island to fix this. American utility companies are going to have to come in and bring in—and pe- they're going to have to ship in. This is when the Jones Act w- would be a problem, like shipping in all the poles, all the wires— that hasn't happened yet. So it's not like the power is being restored.
0: And this is where I think, you know, the sort of typical Hurricane Jones Act 10-day waiver is not taking the scope of the problem seriously, right? That Puerto Rico is an island, so like literally all things all that are materials. not manufactured there have to come in on boats. And if you're talking about even, I don't want to say uh, something, like, Sandy, right? It went fine, I think, as a sort of immediate day of thing. But still, for it was taking months to rebuild all the different stuff. And just things get to New Jersey on trucks and on trains. That's like the normal way to do it. Things have to get to Puerto Rico on boats. And that's going to be power lines. It's going to be, you know, replacing roofs on people's houses, everything. And having a rule that it's, it's twice as expensive to ship a container from New York to Puerto Rico, as to ship it from New York to Jamaica, right? And that's the that's the Jones Act cost, right? And so, unless you have a permanent repeal, I, I mean, either either repeal the law or exemption for Puerto Rico, which is what uh, I think the, the latest McCain legislation yeah. would do. You can have an elevated cost of absolutely everything that you do. So even if money is made available by by Congress. It, we sh- I mean we should be at least trying to make whatever money they can get go go far right rather than than narrowly but at the moment it's set for so much of it to just end up in the in the pockets of this sort of relatively small Jones compliant uh, merchant fleet um and it's it's staggering right I mean just given the sort of the, the the scale of the issue here but the sort of the basic issue right the subtext of these Trump tweets is that Puerto Rican government, even hurricane aside, is, like, completely broke. Which it is. Right.
2: But he's using it as an excuse for why we, it's their fault that they're in a mess. Why should we have to pay for their rebuilding? That's how I've interpreted it. I don't know how you guys have interpreted it.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's hard to give Trump much credit here because, like, he is clearly, I think, just, like, not concerned with the situation and I think, like, has a problem with Latino people as we've seen over the years. But, He's also pointing to the fact that there's a real issue because in any kind of situation, if you're talking about appropriating emergency relief money to a sort of a bankrupt entity, people are going to wonder, well, how much of that money just sort of flows back to the creditor entities versus actually being used, right? There's a, there's a political and legal Question: Like, can you create a financial stream that is isolated from the creditors? And if you do that, I mean, how—like, how do you make that legally work? How how do you work this out? Because at the moment, you have people who—there was already in the PROMESA Act this kind of uh, financial control board that is, in effect, running Puerto Rico on behalf of, I guess, hedge funds who bought distressed debt— so they're in control of the situation on some level and how are you going to mediate this because their objective is to get as much of the money that they are owed back as possible to the extent that the you know public on the mainland has a concern here it's about the humanitarian issue here it's not like an unsolvable problem but it is a difficult political yeah. question
2: yeah, I mean, I honestly, I hadn't even thought about that, that how I would have assumed that any FEMA money would automatically just be used for FEMA rebuilding. I mean, I don't even know that what legal claim that creditors could use. I mean, I'm sure they would try to sue for some of that money. I don't know. I don't know. But that, I mean, it is going to be a problem if they think that they should be getting any tax money that would be going to rebuild Puerto Rico's electrical grid.
0: Right. But I mean, that's just the issue, right? So yeah. it's like if if you are, you know, whatever... Fund and PREPA owes you this interest payment, and they're saying, well, you know, we can't pay, but then like Congress gives them a check. Then are you gonna have months of litigation? I mean, yeah, it's no, not, right? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna, not, we're gonna need but... like another congressional like workout yeah. of this of this debt, which legally speaking, right? So it, in America, we have a bankruptcy code and it's long and it has uh a chapter for municipal entities and like how they can declare bankruptcy, and it does not apply to Puerto Rico or to Puerto Rico's sort of sub-state entities like the power utility. So they can't declare legal bankruptcy, and that has created this sort of messy, uncertain legal situation for for the past several years, and Congress sort of addressed it a, a couple of years ago in a way that was not that favorable to Puerto Rico, although more favorable, I guess, than having the whole island sort of field mined by by, by hedge funds. Um, but to me, that's the question that, you know, people have been criticizing Trump for this slow response that Democrats have, and, and that's the sort of um, the low-hanging fruit of this. But what Puerto Rico is really going to need is some kind of massive, both injection of of money, but some kind of relief from from this debt situation in a way that I think is not, you know, as much of a sort of obvious political winner as like, hey, send this hospital ship.
2: Yeah, that is going to be really tough. And, you know, I mean, I think the biggest hurdle will just be to get a relief package from Congress to pass. You know, we saw what happened after Sandy trying to get Congress on board, uh, you know, and that's part of, you know, the, the mainland United States. So I think the first hurdle will be just to get Congress and really pressure them to pass a relief bill and that get Trump to sign it. And but yeah, down the road once that money is allocated to rebuild Puerto Rico, what's you know what's going to happen? There is going to be a question about what the how the debt pseudo bankruptcy or whatever, you know whatever you call it is going to play into it.
1: And I, I think this is going to put a lot of Puerto Ricans into a sort of existential crisis. You know, what do we do? Do we stay? Do we go? A lot of people are going to be asking that question. And I mean seems likely that a lot of people are going to choose to leave because partly this has been an incredibly traumatic event uh, and if they can leave they probably will some of them will and then but then also i mean these are huge questions of rebuilding and the future of Puerto Rico that
0: and and i mean i i wonder about the political context i mean because for for decades the sort of unusual legal status quo of Puerto Rico has been stable you know where they have many of the advantages of of American citizenship. I mean, including most notably freedom to move to the to the mainland and and move back without without restriction, which you know other people in in Latin America would enjoy having. Um, they don't pay personal income tax, which is nice. I I would like to not pay income tax, uh, but in exchange, they don't have meaningful political representation in Washington, and that. It hurts you when a hurricane comes. It hurts you when you have a weird maritime regulation that is increasing the price of everything that you consume. And it turns out to really hurt you on things like this bankruptcy issue, right? I mean, odd legal quirks wind up piling up around Puerto Rico over the decades because nobody is there from Puerto Rico in the committees to be like, hey— you know, like, here, here's a thing, right? And, and get it addressed. And, you know, you have to wonder if if Puerto Ricans are not going to look back at this and say, you know, what seemed like a pretty good deal for, for a long time is actually not, you know, working out as well as we want. And it's been a long time since the United States had uh, people asking to become a state.
2: Yeah, it will be really interesting to see what the whole the statehood, um, question will be for Puerto Rico cuz right now the I, before the hurricane it was it was still divided and it's been divided for so long the people who say remaining a commonwealth is just like us being a colony and about half of the people saying we want um you know we we actually like this setup we don't have to get all the federal, federal you know the same oversight and regulations that other states get and we we do get a lot of benefits um you know not they don't get all kinds of, of the same benefits that um people on the mainland do but yeah, so I wonder if, if, like, in the next come the next election, if this is, there's going to be more of a push for Puerto Rico to become a state, a majority of the island would need to support that, and right and before the hurricane, they didn't; they were pretty split.
0: Right. I mean, I, I think the sort of basic, like, it would be nice to have a senator, has never seemed all that compelling to yeah. people, and it's instead been, you know, debated on this sort of. Which social welfare programs are you eligible for? Which taxes and regulations are you exempted from? Kind of kind of practicalities, but you see here, I mean, they are how much they are relying on, essentially Marco Rubio to yeah. be their kind of pseudo senator, and and Nadia Velazquez and from New York and in, in the House. I mean, there's there's a lot of people who have you know constituents of Puerto Rican ancestry, people who who care that the New York City delegation has always provided some sort of virtual representation of of Puerto Rican interests. But it's not the same thing as having real members who are full-time accountable to you working on this. And you have to believe that that's a lot of the origin of this, right? I mean, that's how we, we started talking, right? This was not taken as seriously as similar pictures aimed at Florida
1: would have been.
2: Absolutely, yeah. No, I agree. And one of the things that I think is interesting, you were mentioning the uh, the migration. I mean, uh, it's already happening. People are are coming to stay with their relatives in the United States. I know many people who are who are leaving, you know, it might be temporarily at first, but if it's going to take months to restore power and get infrastructure going, people are gonna just, Puerto Ricans are just going to stay in the United States, get a job because they can. And that has political consequences, um, you know, especially for Republicans, if they're viewed and the administration is viewed as not having Um, done enough for Puerto Rico, you know, come the next election that, especially if they're in Florida, the migration chain right now has been from Puerto Rico to Florida, not necessarily New York so much. And Florida is a very important state in the elections. And since they can't vote um, in the presidential elections on the island, you know, it's going to have a huge impact, I think.
0: And I mean, we saw, I mean, Katrina sent a a large number of people from New Orleans, basically permanently to Houston.
1: They couldn't go home. I mean, they literally couldn't go home for quite a while.
0: Right. Well, and also, though, because there's a somewhat similar situation in that, I don't know how close you want to draw this analogy, but before Katrina hit, the Houston area economy was in a much healthier situation than the New Orleans area economy. So people who were living in New Orleans have family, their friends, they grew up there, their homes are there. They didn't want to go leave for Houston where there's better economic opportunities. But once your home is destroyed and you're already fled to another city and you're staying with people there, it turns out, right, that there's some actually easier to get a job, things like that. And I I think you would see the same thing, right? I mean, if if you leave Puerto Rico and are able to take Refuge with with family, you know, near Orlando, uh, elsewhere in Florida, and you need to stay for a while because there's no electricity, and you manage to get a job there. It's it's just for a, the past decade or so, like move to Puerto Rico has not been a very compelling sort of life option.
2: Yeah, this is going to lead to mass mass migration to the United States mainland, and it's going to be Florida, and it's going to have huge political consequences because there's suddenly going to be all these new voters. Um, in Florida. And I I think that's, I would hope that's something that at least, at the very least, politicians in Washington would care about, if not actually for like the (laughs) well-being, I don't know, well-being of Puerto Ricans. But um, if anything, the political consequences should make uh, certain people worry about what happens after this.
1: Yeah. And one one little detail just about people leaving the island. I I did read that there are waiting lists of up to 20,000 people on some airline. So currently in San Juan, I think there are tens of thousands of people trying to get out. And indeed, I think it's reasonable to assume that many of them, you know, might not come back. Partly for the same reason as Katrina. It like there will you? be there will be nothing to come back to for a while because it's going to take so long to rebuild and repair and get life back to something comparable to what it had been pre-Maria.
0: So is there anything in particular Eliza that that we should sort of Look for over the next next week or a couple of days to see if things are getting on getting on track. Or, I mean, what's what's the the sort of the the, the next big hurdle here?
1: Well, before I answer that, I, I want to say that uh, I am definitely very concerned about the death toll rising um, over the next week. I think that no water, no food that is super serious. And we know that right. there are lots and lots of small towns. You know, only 400,000 people live in San Juan, right? And this is, an, this is an island of 3.4 million people. There are 3 million people. Okay, some of them are in other urban areas that are on coasts that have ports that are being reached with supplies right now. But I think there are a lot, a lot of small towns in the middle of the island that have are completely isolated. We're now nine days in, and we know that many, many, many people have not been reached. So, Short term, still a very, very serious humanitarian crisis, still uh, need to get supplies to people and fuel. You know, we keep hearing in the last couple of days that we are now in a distribution crisis, right? They cannot find ways to get the fuel out to people. So, you know, I'm really going to be really interested to see how both— Military leaders, the three-star general who's now in, in charge, plus FEMA, which still, by the way, is running the whole show. Um, how they're going to deal with this distribution crisis? This, and particularly the fuel. You know, I mean, it's it, it sounds like a hard challenge. <laughs> um, are they going to be dropping it in by helicopter? I mean, I don't know. But you know, roads are repair or sorry, roads are destroyed. There's debris all over the place. Super challenging. And then, you know, I think back to, to uh, some of the things we were talking about earlier. Presidential leadership in these moments matters a ton. And, you know, it has been very lackluster so far. I don't know that we have, none; any of us have particularly high expectations for Trump's visit uh, next week. But, you know, the Puerto Rican people could use some empathy right about now. Um, they could use some support and uh, Seems unlikely that they will get what they need in terms of that assurance, but I think that's going to be interesting to watch because, indeed, there will continue to be a lot of criticism of the administration, and they clearly don't like it. I mean, the last couple of days have been very defensive about their response, so they are hearing the criticism. So I think sort of seeing how that continues to play out will be interesting. I mean, do we
0: really know? I mean, it it does seem like the sort of saving grace of this situation so far is is a relatively low Death toll compared to some other serious Absolutely. disasters,
1: but do we do we really
0: know that? I mean, do they have a sound count?
1: No, <laughs> I, I I think we don't because of the communication. Right outages uh, and the fact of people being isolated and cut off because the roads are destroyed or there's now, you know, there's things are washed out. We absolutely have no idea uh, of the death or the health toll of this. I mean, another concern is, you know, uh, there are more people over the age of 60 in Puerto Rico than any state in America. There are a lot of elderly folk who are uh, particularly at risk of yeah, with no Injury air ch- or you know, they may have chronic disease. So I think, you know, this was not the type of disaster with these immediate deaths. Mm-hmm. But I think this will be this will take a heavy toll on human human lives, maybe not in terms of them dying in the next week. But I think you can safely assume that uh, this. Could be something that will be hard for people to recover from physically, and you know could play a role in a, a, a significant, a, a, be a determinant, major determinant in their health going forward. And I that's, mean,
0: I, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, you 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 know this this as well as I, Alexia. I mean, how how do you take care of a baby in these circumstances? Yeah, I don't with know. No electricity. No. I was no thinking no how they water. were
2: calling for like, please send baby formula to Puerto Rico, and I'm thinking, okay, if it, Gets to luckily if it gets to San Juan, how is it going to get to like families out in the mountains? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, and have, you, I mean, you need imagine. clean
0: water. You need to keep things cool. Yeah. Like, it's just the logistics of of everything. For I, I mean, anyone who's in a delicate health situation.
2: Yeah, and even though there have like Puerto Ricans are used to like severe power outages, and so people, a lot of people have generators. They can't get fuel right now. You see pictures of people with their gas cans, waiting to get gas to fill up their generators. It's not because they're trying to fill up their cars. They just want, you know, some, some electricity and that's not getting anywhere. So yeah, I can't even imagine like what families are dealing with, with young kids out in the mountains of Puerto Rico.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you guys. I mean, it's a, Sort of sobering uh, situation, and it, it seems like we will probably have occasion to revisit this uh, this, this response and, and recovery effort because uh, problems not not going away anytime soon. Um, so, so thanks to Alexia and Eliza for for being here with me. Um, thank you to uh, uh, Peter Leonard, our, our engineer, Jillian Weinberger, our, our producer here. It's uh, it's a Kelly Swanson's last day with us, and uh, we'll be we'll be tragically missed. Uh, but we will um, see all of you listeners uh, next week with a, with another episode. So. Uh, Hope Thanks as always for listening to the weeds. Uh, But I also want to take this moment to insert a a really proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Uh, Vox Media is the fastest-growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox.com, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care about most. Uh, You know, for us, that's that's really public policy. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you to discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next, or Curbed, all about real estate, home design, all that great stuff. Uh, What unites all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality, because we believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audiences. So if you aren't going deep, where are you going? Check out Vox Media.